So when I would ask for feedback, people will start talking about things around that this is not happening well, but not about me in general. And and it's not that they don't want to say; it's not they're afraid of it. They have not even thought in that dimension that okay, that there's an op- that I can also give feedback to. Like this is this godly feeling or authoritative feeling in India, and it comes from the way our school system works and stuff. That that your superior is the right person, and you, whatever he says and does is right, and you just have to follow. So there's no opportunity to ever give feedback back to your parents or your teachers, in some cases your bosses. Uh, so so that becomes extremely hard. The way I try to drive it now is by asking setting specific time, and now because I've asked it so many times, people come prepared now that I'm going to ask this question. So what can they say? Um, but otherwise, I think it's like any one-on-one setting is. That was Harshil Mathur, the co-founder and CEO of Razorpay. Like what we've seen is that success is most closely associated with how much belief the person has. and it's you know it doesn't matter whether you're joining at a cxo level or you're joining at an executive level uh the ones who have flourished or enjoyed working here the most and have like stayed here over many many years are the believers you know the ones who believe in the idea of the fact that uh, you know there's a brand made by indians for indian women uh, or excited about brand building product or just believe in the you know like uh it trust us as founders uh, kaushik and i and um lo- what happened in the last 2 3 years is that suddenly there was this hype around startups and a lot of like people who were doing well in their careers started thinking of this as a alternative career option and i feel that you know often that attracts the wrong kind of people because if you're not a believer you know when the party is over you know when the lights are out and there is like you know probably no increments possible and you're going through a you're going to be phase, the first ones to check out you're going to be the first ones to check out so the i mean it's of course unfortunate for the entrepreneur but forget us for that employee they will never be able to uh, unlock that value that they thought they would create because for that value compounding has to play out and for compounding tenure matters so you end up coming in and then you leave when you know it's it gets tougher you never create the wealth that you thought you could create in a startup right so i feel that it's uh, it's like you know double whammy one is that like like believers um, will not end up doing well uh, non believers will not end up doing well for themselves and the non believers don't end up doing well for us so which is why we are very excited about the fact that we want to continue attracting those who are excited about the space excited about that was vinita singh the co-founder and ceo of sugar cosmetics but the day i finished my 3 years i was ready to run to do something different sequoia had funded us on the first round i went to sequoia to raise money this was the day when days when kunal had raised his round jitain has raised his round Uh, I was ready to raise a decent round in those time and get going. And Shailendra, who is on the board of Sequoia, calls me up and says, "Hey, Amrish, there's another way to do it." And we spent hours together to understand what is the another way. But I think the simple thing what he told me is, he's saying, "You're the dog who's chasing for something important. I'm going to give you the keys of the car. You drive that car." um to be fair with him he's lived up to his side of the deal till date and as far as i'm concerned i'm never going to call myself the founder of pine labs but i'll always say that this is a company which i completely own and run that was amrish rao the ceo of pine labs 
लास्ट ईयर एवरीबडी वॉज इन्वेस्टिंग एवरीवेयर द नंबर ऑफ डील्स वर स्काय हाई वेर आर दोज गुड कंपनीज दिस ईयर दे आर इवन बेटर कंपनीज फॉर सर्वाइविंग इन द एनवायरमेंट बट नो बडी वॉन्ट्स टू टच बिकॉज अदर्स आर नॉट टचिंग सो इट इज अ हार्ड मेंटेलिटी एंड वी वेंट टू साउथ कोरिया सम अनोन इन्वेस्टर सम सिंगल गाय इन जपैन एच एन आई सो फॉर द फर्स्ट फाइव ईयर्स वी जस्ट सर्वाइव्ड एंड देन वेन ऑफकोर्स द नेटवर्क इफेक्ट स्टार्ट हिटिंग देन जनरल अटलांटिक एंटायर ग्लोबल केम सो माई लर्निंग फ्रॉम दिस इज दैट हे यू कॉन्ट फाइट इट यू जस्ट नीड टू सर्वाइव सो वी थिंक दैट वी आर लाइक अ कॉकरोच कंपनी वी फॉर द वी जस्ट वॉन्ट टू सर्वाइव एंड आर वाइल वी हैड एटीन करोड़ वेन वी रेस्ड वेन एवर मी अखिल एंड सौरभ वेन एवर वी यूज टू ट्रेवल ओवरसीज वी विल ऑलवेज स्टे इन वन रूम विद एक्स्ट्रा बेड इन विच अखिल स्लीप एंड वी इन आर एच एस आर ऑफिस विच वी टूक इवन इन दैट वन और टू मंथ ऑफ समर विच इज देयर वी नेवर टू के सी वाइल वी हैड मनी बिकॉज वर सो मच पैरानॉइड दैट नो बडी इज फंडिंग अस सो वॉट हैपन टू अस एंड आई थिंक दैट फ्रूगल मेंटेलिटी स्टिल कंटिन्यूज सो any problem and the frugal mentality quickly kicks in because yeah that was amit agarwal the co-founder and ceo of no broker it goes back to the start why we why you ended up starting ether um we wanted to build an energy company um if we just landed up on batteries and that took us to vehicles now what we wanted to do was just build a lot of electric vehicles because that has a meaningful impact in the energy space um so but how do you build a lot of oil how do you build a lot of evs how do you sell a lot of evs and as we went through our options we kind of realized that yeah you could do like an ultra cheap vehicle and try and sell it but you will just end up commoditizing your sales not create enough value not create enough trust and in the process possibly cause a lot of mess and that's what kind of happened in china uh you could take an approach of uh, go ultra heavy on marketing right of a fairly mediocre product um but then you're just going to run into essentially a marketing battle with companies that are way better than you on this right like a bajaj to left right and center if you try to do that you could try and just discount again an average product and sell that but then you're on a discounting war with larger funded startups and they will always be better funded startup than you and that's a terrible thing like if i want to put i want to do this for the next 30 40 years I don't want to put the fate of this entire thing down to who fundraises better. That's a terrible, terrible. Uh, uh, I, I don't like the control that it gives me. So, what's the best strategy to control uh, and actually put out a lot of vehicles? We realize that you know what turns out in the scooter space, not a lot of people are trying to build a good product. With the exception of the original Honda Activa, I have very little respect for great products. There have just not been enough great products in this space. Activa is the last great That's product. That's the. and that was Tarun Mehta the co-founder and CEO of Ether Energy Hello and welcome back to First Principles back after a much needed vacation I'm Rohan Dharmakumar your host If you started listening to First Principles in 2023 then today's special episode might be something you'll love We went back to guess 6 through 10 from 2022 and created a supercut episode that highlights some of the most interesting bits from my conversations with these accomplished founders if you find them interesting scroll back in your podcast player to our earlier episodes and listen to the full episodes if you've already listened to episode 6 through 10 you can safely skip today's episode 
We begin with Harshil Mathur, the co-founder and CEO of Razorpay. Originally a payment gateway to help small Indian startups handle online payments and subscriptions, but today a fintech giant offering loans, payroll services and even bank accounts. Harshil talks about his journey into entrepreneurship, how Razorpay develops products, the importance of deliberately driving company culture and much more. Let's hear Harshil. Yeah, it's hard to answer. I really can't put my finger on it. I think um, I I didn't have a computer at home and uh, when I was growing up. That's least. my question. Yeah. <laughs> so in fourth, fifth standard, I uh, my dad put me in a computer class uh, uh, near uh, near my home, and, and it was a very s- simple class around MS DOS and Word and stuff like that. And I really enjoyed that. I used to love going there, and it was um, I. I went there for summers and I loved it so much. I started going there every day uh, after summers as well. And uh, and my dad saw that I had a lot of interest in it. So so he kept he kept the course on, and I learned DOS. I learned basic programming. This was I was in I think fifth standard or something, and I started learning like basic tools around computers and stuff. It was nothing complex, just very simple stuff. Of course, I liked gaming on computers. So I used to spend a lot of time after classes in playing games with folks there. Uh, my proper interesting computer happened in I think seventh standard um, uh, when uh, because I used to love uh, computers so much. My dad gave me a challenge that if you win the scholarship in seventh, uh, my in my school, anyone who got the highest marks across all sections would get a scholarship. If you win a scholarship, I'll buy you a computer. So I typically used to be second or third. Uh, that year, I worked really hard. I got 99% and my dad had to buy me a computer because I won the scholarship. And that uh, started me. Uh, then I got full interest in computer because I had a computer at home. So mm-hmm. I used to spend all my days and nights um, just uh, playing games or writing stuff or learning coding. Um, internet came much later, around I think around 10th standard or yeah. something. But uh, used to spend a lot of time on on the computer. So then uh, we, uh, me and Shishank started building the product. We were still in our jobs, but we started building the product on the side. So again, using our weekends to build the product. The most complex aspect was that while we were building the product, we still didn't have access to bank APIs and bank integrations. So the way, uh, and this is interesting that almost all payment integrations before Razorpay looked exactly the same and Razorpay was very different. And the reason for that is typically how payment gateways start is that you go to a bank, you get access to their integration kit, and then people build a layer on top of it. So almost all payment gateways looked similar because all banking it's APIs look similar. built on top of yes, so something ba- which is given to you by yes, the bank. So the bank APIs look similar and you build a layer on top of it. So everything looks similar. Because we didn't have access to bank APIs, in some ways it was a blessing that we didn't know how the backend looks like, but we knew what the merchant needs. So we built it as built, uh, built it with the view of if I were I was a startup and if I wanted to integrate a payment gateway, how would should it look like? How should the API look like? How should the integration look like? What would I want to do? And that's how we built the first version of the product. Uh, Parallelly, I started talking to banks and trying to figure out, can we get in? So we still hadn't left our jobs because we didn't know that we can get through this banking side problem. It seemed like a very complex black box because none of us had any idea on how this this side of the world works. So we, I literally just walked into the SDFC branch next door to my home in Jaipur and said, hey, I want to start a payment gateway. And the guy looked at me and confusingly and he said, do you want a payment gateway? I said, no, I want to start a payment gateway. 
and he had no idea like how can you start a payment gateway i mean of course uh, we later realized that these things are handled by specialized branches in only specific cities so so i spoke to that guy he said no i can't help you but i'll try to find and call back i went to axis i went to icici i went to sbi almost every bank and some of them connected me to some people some of them said no directly so it was a lot of struggle and i spent almost 6 months just running to banks and jumping through these hoops to figure out figure out how do we get there and if we got rejected at one place we try to find somebody senior on linkedin and reach out to him and then we got rejected there so we found somebody else senior in some other bank and we were speaking to so many banks at that point of time remember the date it was 6th of feb 2014 um, uh, we got a meeting with the senior guy in hdfc bank and while this guy was senior he was relatively younger um in in banking world and he understood what we meant by startups and by digital companies and what we wanted to do so he was the first guy who gave a he was, in the meeting he said okay i can give you an in principle approval you'll still have to uh, fulfill a lot of um responsibilities and uh, submit a security deposit and everything but i can give you an in principle approval for you to start operating i remember that date because the next day i went to slumberjay and left my job <laughs> like literally uh because that was the only thing we were waiting for the product we were already building up everything else was getting set up the right way but was it still just the two of you it's still just the two of us so i left my job uh, moved into this full time told shashank that you should also leave your job come down now we have a bank integration we know how to build the product we have talked to customers we have all the aspects right we can jump into this full time so shashank took a, he still took about 3 months to leave his job and come down he was waiting for his microsoft shares to vest uh and then he came down to jaipur and we started building this from jaipur in my parents home i think uh in the early days um there are two major motivations right like one is to really create a name for ourselves like like just be able to create that okay we built something that stands out in the ecosystem and that's used by people and and the second in some ways was that create it uh create something that gives us I'll say in some ways purpose that like that gives us purpose that like okay this is something that I can put my energies and whatever I have and the skills I have in the right form right I think over time of course the first part has gone away the purpose part still stays true the first part has gone away and it has changed to more of an impact question that like how big of an impact can I create now with with this opportunity that I have like like uh, so whenever I look back at every day at the ecosystem I see so many problems that are unsolved that razorpick could solve right so so many challenges that a founder faces that a startup owner faces that razorpick could solve that that they are still struggling through and and i think now it has become more on how much impact can razorpay have on all of these people uh, and can really change the way this ecosystem operates if we were to dissect razorpay's success on the basis of either the philosophies or principles that it stands for what would be the top two or three principles that has enabled razorpay to get to where it is today hmm. you know first thing i would say is a very very strong focus on culture yeah this. i'm going to ask you to explain that because how like if you're saying that's you actually you, this is the first reason you've mentioned i'm yeah. and i've heard this as well from a lot of other people that the employee culture at razorpay is really good what is it that you did or what is it that you set out to do was it something that you accidentally ended up doing was it something that you deliberately wanted to do because when two of you started a company it sounds very hard for me to think at that point that you were thinking look we got a build culture because you came from 
Schlumberger, he's coming from Microsoft, you have no shared concept of culture. So how did this importance of culture come about for you and for Shashank and for Razorpay? So when we read about Google, when we read about like uh, Apple and a lot of these companies, one thing that was very clear is that the company took the shape of what their culture was. Um, and even though it was not very evident at the start, but if you look at like what Google is today or what Facebook is today or what Apple is today, it's a reflection of what the culture that the founders set. Like that, like if I were to pick up Sergey Brin and Larry Page and make them build any company, it would look like Google. Right? And, and I think, and that gave us a lot of focus that setting the right culture will decide how the company will look 10 years out or 15 years out or stuff like that. And I think because of that, we, we were very deliberate with our culture that, that this is the kind of culture we want to have. And this is the kind of culture we don't want to have. And like a lot of these are choices. Uh, there's no right and wrong, but just that we were clear that this is the right kind of culture that we would want. For example, one of the core tenets of our culture is transparency, uh, that, uh, that we focus a lot on creating a, a transparent environment where people inside the company have very clear view um, of what's happening and what, where we're going. Like, um, and it comes out in various ways. Uh, we most of our discussions happen on Slack public channels and not on private channels. We have a strong discouragement of DMs policy that like don't do direct messages. Use public channels as much as possible. To something as simple as that, there'll be no cabins in the office. So, uh, so there are no cabins in the office. More like, or even more interesting, there are no curtains in the office. So, like, if you look at Razorpay office, no room in Razorpay has uh, has frosting. Like, all glasses are transparent and stuff like that. These are small things, but but it adds up together to create the culture right. of transparency. That and the reason we have transparency as a core focus value is that we we believed that a lot of innovation happens from the ground. Like, innovation happens bottoms up. And that innovation cannot happen till you have information asymmetry. If people don't have visibility, in, if my sales guy doesn't have visibility in how my product is developed, he can't come up with an idea on, okay, like can, can we build a product this way and it will sell better, right? So information symmetry is important to have ground up innovation. And that is the reason we created a lot of focus on having a transparent culture. So that is one aspect of the culture. There are a lot more. Sure. But one of the things that we were very focused on is that we were very deliberate with our culture. And we still are that uh, that if, if is it, is it going, codified? Is it codified? It's codified, but codifying almost every company does codify exactly. culture. It does very little to actually propagate culture, right? So, what in your words is the value that you and only you as CEO add to the company? <laughs> I think the biggest value I add to the company it happens because of uh, the side that I have from top is unblocking uh, things. Um, a lot of, as we grow larger and larger, a lot of things get stuck in the entanglement between functions and processes and structures. And the biggest value add I can do is just get into that and unblock it. And then unblocking can happen by bringing people on the same page, sometimes by changing the structures or changing the process because the process is becoming the bottleneck. Sometimes it will require a larger change in terms of, let's say, it requires a change of the strategy or org design. Uh, to make it happen. But that's the biggest value I can add. What are the three most common adjectives that your colleagues would use to describe you? Mm. <laughs> I think uh, impatient. I'm always in a hurry. Uh, and even people make fun of that I speak really fast. Uh, you probably would have noticed it uh, because I'm always in slight bit of a hurry. 
um, in getting through my point and getting through things. Um, the second thing uh, is uh, I I uh, I don't know how would they put it, but I I spend a lot of time going through the metrics, um, right? So like that is how they describe that. Okay, like, detail oriented. Detail oriented or like we're very metric focused. All right. Is that like you spend a lot numbers of time, focused numbers focused right. uh, and talk a lot about numbers. And lastly, um, like um, a few people would say this um, uh, specifically that uh, I talk a lot to people about how they feel, and uh, and this is something that said that it's very different that. uh when when i am doing a one on one or i when i'm doing a chat i spend uh like generally the especially with my leadership team at least the five seven minutes talking about how they feel how are they feeling generally this is something i learned from an investor like this one investor in particular ribbit um uh, almost every investor when they would talk they would ask how's the business doing uh i had a first conversation with mickey from ribbit and he asked me how are you doing and i started telling okay this is razor page doing this he said no 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 i'm asking how are you doing and and i think that's a habit i've really copied what's the best time or method to give you feedback yeah uh, this is again a big challenge uh, for a founder that like typically you don't get to hear feedback and this is something that again i've tried to incorporate a lot uh, that especially in my reviews and stuff and i'm doing like say a month uh, like a quarterly review and a month uh, or a half month review with my leadership i would keep some time aside to ask them for feedback and a challenge has been that when initially when i would ask for feedback people don't give feedback because they don't know how to give again especially i don't know it comes from indian culture word people don't think about giving feedback to your superior right they don't even think in that lens so when i would ask feedback they'd say this is not happening in this vertical this is not happening in that vertical i said i'm asking for my feedback like what can i do to same question about feelings when yeah. somebody asks you how are you feeling you start talking about how the company how is the doing how the doing. projects are doing so when i would ask for feedback people will start talking about things around that this is not happening well but not about me in general and and it's not that they don't want to say it's not that they're afraid of it they have not even thought in that dimension that okay that there's an op- that i can also give feedback to like this is this godly feeling or authoritative feeling in india and it comes from the way our school system works and stuff that that your superior is the right person and you, whatever he says and does is right and you just have to follow so there's no opportunity to ever give feedback back to your parents or your teachers in some cases your bosses uh, so so that becomes extremely hard the way i try to drive it now is by asking specific specific time and now because i've asked it so many times people come prepared now that i'm going to ask this question so what can they say um, but otherwise i think it's like any one on one setting is easy is there to i'm going to ask you is there something interesting that you can share with us that you've received as feedback from one of your i mean colleagues or direct reports in recent yeah, times a lot of these like for example my impatience i've received a lot of feedback that for example when i do a one on one a lot of times i'll um i'll quick i'll be quick and finish it off in 20 30 minutes even when we have an hour and the and people feel unsatisfied by it that you didn't give me at least an hour a week right like uh we need that much time so i have got that feedback a lot of times i okay. get easily distracted uh i've got that feedback that sometimes i um i'm doing a one on one the guy we are talking and it's not exciting enough for me and i would take out my phone and start doing something and i've got that feedback that that you are you're very distracted uh in conversation so a lot of things have come out like that all right the link to harshil's full conversation episode 6 
is in the show notes. Next, we have Vinita Singh, the co-founder and CEO of Sugar Cosmetics, one of the most popular and fastest growing cosmetics brands in India. Vinita talks about overcoming stereotypes as a woman founder, the importance of passion when it comes to selecting your workplace, and why hustle, hunger, humor, and humility are key pillars of Sugar's culture. Let's listen to Vinita. Okay, so uh, my dad's a biophysicist. <laughs> so, and my mom was a scientist at ICMR. So they're both like PhD, you know, like what Rachel would call the PhD who can't save your life on a plane, but uh, <laughs> the medical researchers. And I grew up in the AIMS campus and uh, I, I grew up with the AIM to exactly do anything but be my dad. <laughs> because I was like, you know, all these doctors, they work so hard and I wanted something quick. Like I wanted to like, you know, quick success. And um, and so I decided I against my parents' wishes, I decided I'm going to become an engineer first because, you know, options were just engineer, doctor. And um, in my while I was uh, actually um, on my first trip to IIT, I was uh, on a plane, um, you know, reading my best friend's letter and crying, uh, you know, because my first time out of Delhi. And um, I, you know, heard somebody say that I teach at IIT Madras uh, in the row behind. And I was like, oh my God, somebody who was at IIT Madras, I swapped places with somebody, went and sat next to him. Turned out he was the head of the electrical engineering department then, uh, which is where I was going. And it was supposed to be like a very uh, scary department because, you know, like it was very hard to even get like a average seven point uh, score. Um, and, uh, but I sat next to him and then of course, uh, to start with, he started asking me like these really tough engineering questions, which I flunked, uh, like, um, you know, how does the tube light work and difference between, uh, um, analog and digital and stuff Why? like that. <laughs> Gen- you already got in. Like, you know. No, he was, you know, it's you, know how professors it's, are, yeah. you know how professors are, right? They feel so strongly about it that they just, you know, love sort of pushing you to see what's in there. Uh, but anyway, so then he asked me, what do you want to be when you, you know, after this, what do you want to do? So I told him at that time that I, you know, chose engineering by elimination. Like, I, I don't know if you've flown from Delhi to Chennai, but it's a two hour, 45 minutes yes, uh, flight. Yes. So I, I think we went over a lot of stuff and this was a few of them. But yeah, I, I but um, so he asked me this question and uh, I said, oh, I want to be, um, what do you really want? I said, um, I guess he like, what will make you happy? I said, maybe being rich. And I remember that time he's like, I've met enough rich people. They're not the happiest. Uh, consider maybe if you don't want to do uh, engineering, consider maybe entrepreneurship. Um, so I, I, you know, for the first time heard that word. Um, and then I sort of like went to campus and then I realized very soon quickly that in electrical engineering, I'm just going to barely make the cut and I ended up with a 7.4, 7.5 CGPA, which was like really average. But um, I started reading a lot about entrepreneurs and I started like devouring all these books, biographies of every single from Howard Schultz, Richard Branson, uh, Steve Jobs and all of these books. And then it sort of in my head became like this, you know, my parachute to get out of engineering, um, You know that this is where I can find something that I might be good at because this I'm not good at. So very honestly, it wasn't a really, um, you know, a decision which was out of that, okay, this is what I really want to do, but it was more out of this is not working. And this could be something interesting for me to try. Uh, So we actually 
started with a um education ed tech at that time thing where we would like have a, a web we had a website called tenor day where every mo- day you could have 10 questions to help you prepare for cat and you had to solve them online and the idea was to expand it to every single competitive exam and get try to get people to solve do assessment online and benchmark themselves so in 2007 obviously it was going to be dead uh, and uh, then we uh, pivoted that to background verification so i ended up finally running for 5 years an uh, employee background verification company where we would try using some tech to make the process more efficient but we realized that companies weren't ready to pay a premium for it so it was became a commoditized business and it didn't scale and it was like this services business where you had to do like a lot of business development to get every single contract and i hated it like to the core mm. and i always wanted to do a consumer business um and how long were you at this first five years and it was it was the toughest five years of my life and um, and you know so during campus i proposed to my other three co-founders that let's start a women's lingerie brand called caress and i always wanted to do something for women consumers and it was like this passion thing uh but um so while we were on campus we tried pitching to a few vcs 10 15 of them and they said that it's impossible to try to build a brand uh without funding and you guys don't have any experience in textiles so i don't think you'll get funded uh so that so before we graduated we killed that idea and then so then the day i got out of this company i was like okay i am going to build a consumer business for women and that's how fab bag happened because uh, i you know at that time it was impossible to think that we could come up with a brand but we thought that if it's a subscription business we might you know firstly uh, be able to do something that's different from what everybody else is doing uh, because uh, everything else seemed like commoditized and secondly we might be able to raise some money <laughs> what makes you get up after you take a hard knock oh <laughs> i still need to cry it out first and it's you know from like uh uh and it's just i feel that for women it's just like a you know self expression so i need to get over it first like those 2 3 hours of uh crying it out uh but then many times it's about you know you remind yourself that it's not going to matter in 10 years and uh, this is something that i've learned from kaushik actually every time i'm like really upset about something uh you know he'll be like okay is this going to matter in 10 years if it's something that matters in 10 years then i get myself to wake up next day thinking about how i can make an attempt another attempt at it because you know i definitely the one thing i never ever do is like give up easily uh so uh, if it's going to matter in 10 years i'll make another attempt and if it's not going to matter in 10 years i will just somehow uh find a way to focus on something else and um, i feel that you know the like whenever i've gone through really really stressful situations in my life i've Uh, resorted to exercise i don't know that that's something that just helps me like i remember when the covid lockdown started like you know one or two days of realizing this is for real and then the first thing i did was like decide like you know till this entire lockdown is over i'm going to just whatever happens do and work out every single day and i did that for about 120 days straight because it was just so hard uh, but then i need to you know sort of channelize my stress into something else so generally when i'm you know happy i might slack in everything else like you know working out and reading but in my most stressful phases of life i will be like super disciplined because that's the way I, where i channel all my energy and stress yeah right from an entrepreneur point of view if you could go back uh to your through your entrepreneurial journey and maybe change one thing is there something that you would change or I, do differently many things 
like many many things I would do differently. But yeah, I mean, you there's just that's the whole point of all the failures, right? Because you can only learn through them. You never learn through success. So I've had so many failures. Uh, I think the biggest I would change is I would build something I'm passionate about early on. I think my first business I was bootstrapping and I was only optimizing for cash flow. And unfortunately, as an entrepreneur, if you were forced to optimize for cash flow very early on, although it builds great fiscal discipline, um, it sometimes takes away from that ability to build something which is really meaningful in the long run. It just becomes a numbers business. It just becomes a numbers business, and then you start doing too many things too early, and it just becomes like a, um, you know, like a small boutique services business um, and that's how most of us end up so i feel that if i had the conviction to believe in myself and you know stay true to what i was passionate about right at the start uh, which is hard because i was also 23 so i i you know i always feel that that was all part of the larger plan i guess it was it's hard for a 23 year old to have that kind of foresight but i think i you know because i have this thing as a i'm a marathoner right so i have this thing that i will not give up i i don't know when to check out and that those 5 years were a bit too long for that learning to come through and get imbibed i think i pushed it too much because i was like i will not quit you know i feel that like my the only reason i've succeeded is because of grit and but then sometimes you never know when to you know check out what do you feel you add most value to sugar as ceo uh first i think is the consumer understanding i am really i speak to thousands of women uh, in markets in you know through our d2c platform we do a lot of uh, consumer interaction calls and i feel that uh, it's very important and it's the ceo's job to know the consumer well uh, so i think that's first second is of course uh, you know just energy and optimism i feel that um, that's really important to uh, because any business you're in it doesn't matter whether it's cosmetics there are going to be like every you know good part is going to be followed with a hard part and you need that one optimist to like keep everything together so what i fundamentally believe is that's the most important job of a leader or a manager is the coaching and the mentoring because at the end of the day it's you know when somebody succeeds um it's on you and somebody fails it's on you as a leader or manager and i i am very passionate about doing that but i realize that uh, a lot of times you know in startups what happens is that young people do super well and then they grow with the organization and then they end up having large teams but they've never really uh had the opportunity to grow this side because at the end of the coaching mentoring requires this love and patience uh which is you know very unconditional right and that's hard when you are like a 27 year old manager running a team of like uh, 20 people who you know who so now i feel uh, more and more about it we just got a chief people officer and you know the thing the biggest project that i want to drive with him is about formal coaching mentorship because i do feel that in my own journey so a year ago um one of our investors called me up and said that do you want a mentor there's a mentorship program uh, for women it's called winp mentorship program and uh, you know they might help you find one i had never formally had a mentor and i just you know instinctively trusted him and said let's do it 
and then they managed to they asked me who do you want etc what kind of person etc and then they went over over a process and they came back saying that um, Vivek Gambhir who's the CEO of Boat now and who is a Godrej consumer CEO uh, is okay to become your mentor and I was like yes and over the last 12 months I've had like just four five conversations with him but long three hour discussions and my it's ex- opened up my own thinking to so many possibilities and i realized from my own experience that oh my god if i don't give this opportunity to my team uh, then i'm really constraining them because right now they're just constrained to whatever i know and a lot of times uh, they can not be as transparent with me as they can be with an external um, mentor so because of both of these things one because i realized that uh, senior leaders may not have the bandwidth or the ability to coach and second because of my own uh understanding of even if somebody has the ability they may not be able to you know give an external perspective uh i think that we want to introduce this formally now in the organization haven't really gotten around to doing it but it's something that we're going to do what part of your job do you wish you didn't have to do i think one part we got already which was fundraising definitely number one and second is agreements and lawyer conversations uh. and are very luckily for me my co-founder just like loves all of that i have not you know, i mean i i remember like on some you know realizing once that there was a two hour long conversation around uh, mal- malified versus intended malified and i realized that i am a very hyper impatient person so for me like you know going over like documents which are like 20 pages and all of that is very hard like what we've seen is that success is most closely associated with how much belief the person has and it's you know it doesn't matter whether you're joining at a cxo level or you're joining at an executive level uh the ones who have flourished or enjoyed working here the most and have like stayed here over many many years are the believers you know the ones who believe in the idea of the fact that uh, you know there's a brand made by indians for indian women Uh, or excited about brand building product or just believe in the you know like uh, it trust us as founders uh, kashik and i and um, lo- what happened in the last 2 3 years is that suddenly there was this hype around startups and a lot of like people who were doing well in their careers started thinking of this as a alternative career option and i feel that you know often that attracts the wrong kind of people because if you're not a believer you know when the party is over you know when the lights are out and there is like you know probably no increments possible and you're going through a you're going to be phase, the first ones to check out you're going to be the first ones to check out so the i mean it's of course unfortunate for the entrepreneur but forget us for that employee they will never be able to uh, unlock that value that they thought they would create because for that value compounding has to play out and for compounding tenure matters so you end up coming in and then you leave when you know it's it gets tougher you never create the wealth that you thought you could create in a startup right so i feel that it's uh, it's like you know double whammy one is that like like believers um, will not end up doing well uh, non believers will not end up doing well for themselves and the non believers don't end up doing well for us so which is why we are very excited about the fact that we want to continue attracting those who are excited about the space excited about building which morning of the week do you look forward to the most mornings are always monday I, why 
it's just you know I, I'm there's always like over the weekend you know things like something or the other keeps coming in your head that this is what I want to do this is what I want to tell them like at any point I'll have like some 20 things which are like these projects and I want to find somebody and be like okay can you drive this are you excited about this and so on Monday it's like this opportunity to get that all out but sometimes of course Mondays get derailed because there's some fire fighting which I don't like but you know that's again part right. of if you want to queue up the full Vinita episode, the link is in the show notes. Coming up next is Amrish Rao, the CEO of Pine Labs, the payment solutions provider whose point of sales terminals can be seen in most Indian shops and stores. In 2016, Citrus Pay, an online payments provider Amrish co-founded, was acquired by rival PayU for $130 million in cash. It was one of the biggest acquisitions back then. But Amrish says it is also one of his biggest regrets. As a first-time founder, he made the decision to sell his company too quickly. As an entrepreneur, he says, at the end of the day, you need your own horse and your own carriage and you need to be able to hug it every day and saying, this is mine. We talked about creating corporate cultures to F you money, to risk-taking, to the evolution of fintech. Let's listen Amrish. See, I think, you know, um, there is this whole concept around uh, war times and peace times. And the way I say this is that in India, everything is wartime every day. Markets are changing, opportunities are getting bigger. Uh, you know, you could find pots of gold lying anywhere and everywhere. What that means is you actually need to do a lot of debate and conversation within your team. Now, if you're in an environment, if you're in the business line, which is forever at wartime, you want to meet people regularly, you want to have conversations with them. I think there is a need for everybody to be in office. Interestingly, there are different parts within your own organization who really don't need to be in that war room every day. For example, it just doesn't make sense to ask an engineer to, you know, come from two hours away and come into office and code for six hours and then go back. I, ha You know, they have my empathy, sympathy, which says that, look, why should you really come into office every day? But there are going to be product roles, sales roles, finance roles, which you want them to be in that war room. You want them to be close to each other, build the bond. And those sets of people should be coming into office a lot more. Incidentally, what we are trying to drive out here is the top 100 within the organization should be meeting on a regular basis. Beyond the top 100, if they can be a little bit flexible in terms of being in office for, let's say, two days of the week, I think I'm personally fine with it. But just in my style of how I operate, I don't really try and do somebody else's job. And I really let the leadership in my organization decide how they want to run their organization. And they have the flexibility to do it. How many years as an entrepreneur did you take to reach the point where you said you are not going to do somebody else's job for them? You know, that's a brilliant question, right? So I actually think that this is all about age. Uh, I'm sure you'll get to that point at some in your uh, discussion. I'm 49 years. When I was, let's say, 35, 36, I was all about, you know, you know, there is one way of doing it. This is how we do it. Let's all march in the same direction. As you age, you start to realize that people are different. People's circumstances are different. Your thinking process is different. And hence, there's an importance to letting them find their own style, evolve and run organizations on their own. 
at the same time you should not leave it to a such a level where you start to feel that you're hands off when it comes to business so generally my mantra has been that when things are going good do it your own way do it your own style actually you can actually ask me to buzz off if i come and ask you a question but when things starts to tighten up let's all get together and find a way to get out of that situation that we have ended up in so you know i would i would say over the last 2 3 or 4 years one of the things i've learned is uh, for example how do you consolidate cultures uh, i'll give you an example in pine labs today we have pine labs we have quicksilver we have now acquisitions like setu and mosambi and a few others interestingly all the cultures are completely different and i'll i'll tell you by geography right so there is a pine labs which is a noida based organization you have a quicksilver and setu which is a bangalore based organization and you have a mosambi which is a bombay based organization and their ethos their cultures their behaviors are completely different for example at the risk of uh, engaging in some amount of stereotyping help us understand how are mumbai cultures different from bangalore cultures different from delhi ncr cultures I, i you know again so that i don't stereotype it i'll talk about my organization so sure. for example we have an organization uh, quicksilver one of the largest prepaid businesses in the world that organization if you meet anybody from that company you will say such a nice humble sweet set of people but what people don't realize is they are also one of the most aggressive set of you know operators in that organization so there's this unbelievable mix in the bangalore organization that we have is very soft spoken very very humble but aspirations and dreams are unlimited and very aggressive and you know if you're not listening to the conversation carefully you might almost feel saying oh down to earth might be low Chill. on ambitions but they are super aggressive as a team out there on the other hand you have a noida based team from pine labs there was a point in time where they used to only hire for mathematicians in pine labs there and there for example hardcore hindi speaking you know generally a loud organization and you would sometimes believe that hey this is like a over the top aggressive you know institution which we have there on the other hand not at all aggressive that organization was built on the fact that if you give me a nice code to build if you give me a nice math problem to solve i'll go into the deep of it and i'll solve the math problem again if you are just sitting and listening to that you'll feel oh it's such an aggressive behavior which is coming through i've learned that people are completely different you should not start with a position which says that oh understand you know which geography who comes in and where it is everybody has their own strength and how do you bring all of that together into a single jar is something which i have learned over the last 3 years incidentally when citrus was acquired by payu payu was a gurgaon based company uh, all of citrus was based out of bombay two completely different cultures there again and then how do you pull that together is something which i have learned over these last 5 years 3 years the equivalent of a new york company acquiring a silicon valley absolutely. Com- based company absolutely all right if you look at the number of consumers who have today come under the banking umbrella within that a subset of those who have actually adopted to digital payment transactions within that what is the frequency of their transaction we are at an abysmally low number right now from a consumer adoption standpoint 
Similarly, from a merchant adoption standpoint, in terms of how many merchants are today ready to take electronic payment transactions, it is extremely low. Now, obviously, what has happened between uh, the demonetization days to today with UPI and with the whole QR code acceptance, still digital payments has gone to many, many areas. But we still believe that this still covered only 10% of the opportunity where digital payments can go to. There is 90% market left where digital payments can yet go to. So as far as I'm concerned, all the fundraise that we have made in the last two years time, it's really to go ahead and expand places or touch points where digital payments can go to and then start influencing the consumer with right products so that they can make digital payments as a part of their life. And that's really where we've been going to. Now, there's another larger piece to ask is, where do we go next, right? Do we go global? Do we uh, go into more areas just in India? I think those are the things that is still evolving in our thinking process. But the day I finished my three years, I was ready to run to do something different. Sequoia had funded us on the first round. I went to Sequoia to raise money. This was the day when days when Kunal had raised his round, Jiten has raised his round. Uh, I was ready to raise a decent round in those time and get going. And Shailendra, who's on the board of Sequoia, calls me up and says, Hey, Amrish, there's another way to do it. And we spent hours together to understand what is the another way. But I think the simple thing what he told me is, he's saying, you're the dog who's chasing for something important. I'm going to give you the keys of the car. You drive that car. Um, to be fair with him, he's lived up to his side of the deal till date. And as far as I'm concerned, I'm never going to call myself the founder of Pine Labs. But I'll always say that this is a company which I completely own and run. One of the things that I learned in the corporate world, which just completely killed me, if you ask me, was the whole corporate world is structured to be judged. Every action and to be of risk averse. And and because you're going to get judged, you also end up becoming risk averse, right? So one of the things that I have done in each one of my startups is you should not have an environment where somebody is going to judge you. HR is not allowed to judge you. The legal folks are not allowed to judge you. What does you. this mean? Because I'm very intrigued and this is very important. What does it... I know at a simple level, what you're saying makes sense. You should not be judged. But at an organizational level, what are either the cultural values or the processes that you put into place to make sure that that reflects, that you are not judged? Yeah. Like, let's say someone decides to do something, take a bet, and it tanks. What does it mean at Pine Labs to say that person will not be judged? You know, that's a great example. And that's one of the things which I'm actually trying to say, right? That you make a decision and your decision tanks. You're not going to be under the pump for that piece. However, in a large organization of 4,200 people, the problem is somewhere else. People come in with that mindset which says, I don't want to make a decision. If you don't make a decision... I have to tell you, I'm going to go after you. You have to make a decision in your position and you might be successful or you might be unsuccessful. That doesn't matter. But if you don't make a decision, that is unacceptable. Doing nothing is not an option. Is not an option, right? And that, for example, is where we've drawn a very clear hard line which says, you cannot come into a situation and says, oh, the HR didn't give me the right answer. Or, you know, the HR is going to ask the legal how that, is going to all transpire. I wasn't sure how the CFO is going to handle it. 
these are not areas that you can get away with you as a leader or you as a person have to make a decision and it's something which i'm trying to push in a big way that's important the second thing which again coming from the corporate world is what you don't want is you're not allowed to talk about a third person and the person is not in the room now respect I'm, I'm, for the absent absolutely i'm just saying this figuratively right we have that as well because do not say to anyone behind their backs if you can't say it to their face a few years back when rbi came up with this otp requirement on the end of every payment transaction every e-commerce company in india went shouting to rbi saying oh you're going to screw the experience up our transactions are going to fall i believe that this otp coming in has single handedly helped consumer adoption to digital payments because the consumer is saying my money is safe because of this otp my money is not going to go away at the same time when consumers used to just use a card transactions used to happen we know of instances where in punjab and other locations where the consumer used to keep their debit cards in their safe deposit vaults so no transactions were happening so one piece was security and that helped other is coming up with frictionless now the reason one of the reason why upi has worked very well is it's a very frictionless transaction at the same time because of this mpin the consumer feels very comfortable that my money is going to be safe so when you have that sort of an environment transactions will continue to increase on the other hand is when it comes to merchants merchants also realizing saying because of covid people don't want to touch cash because of this demonetization people want to do electronic payments you said you've been in the payment space for roughly 25 years you've been part of multiple companies you've started your own your ceo uh, of pine labs what continues to drive and motivate you you know uh, this is a this is a fantastic question right so uh, you know i feel that there is a certain mission which i have landed on and i feel that what i do makes a tiny impact every day um you know again i talk about it when i started off i used to sell atms my first purchase order were for an atm you was for two atms i sold two atms in the country we threw a party for that two atms deal from that scenario to a scenario where we are deploying 30 35000 pos terminals every month in the country you look at it and said i played a small part and every day i wake up in the morning and saying i'm playing a small part in that journey so an other piece which i want to clarify about me is i'm not into this for entrepreneurship or startup i'm into this because i'm still continuing my lifelong journey of moving money from paper based to digital and that's what keeps me excited every day have you ever thought about the concept of retiring I did I did I did you know this is what I was trying to tell you the first time founder made my money on my first exit I thought I'm just going to chill uh and I and I keep How talking. long did it take you to come out of that <laughs> Was it months I, you know I it it was one year it was one year which took me to realize saying I dude I just can't do this I literally can't do this where uh you know I'm just sitting and um, you know going for vacations and it uh, was 49 today yeah. do you have like any kind of a age number in mind where you're like at after this age i don't want to work i i, I just don't have it and you know you you'll be surprised while growing up uh, uh, you know one of my friends um, you know he told me the other day saying amrish you know 
you were the only guy who used to talk that you want to retire at the age of 40 and dude you've done so well i like you know it's just stuck in my head right no you know what are you oh hang on i got to tell you this one right so there's another close friend of mine in my college days and then my wife also was in my college and uh, my wife is a gujarati and the two of us used to turn around and say boss life mein kuch nahi chahiye एक करोड़ का बैंक बैलेंस चाहिए एक करोड़ हम जाके स्टेट बैंक ऑफ इंडिया में रखने वाले टेन परसेंट इंटरेस्ट कमाएंगे दस लाख रुपए आएगा महीने का जिंदगी में और कुछ भी नहीं करना है माई वाइफ ऑफ गुजराती शी इज टू लुक एट मी एंड शी सेंग आई यू जस्ट मैड आई खिड यू नॉट एंड आई रिमेंबर दिस वेरी क्लियरली आई टू लुक बैक एंड सेंग श्वेता यू डोंट गेट इट दिस इज वॉट लाइफ इज ऑल अबाउट एंड एज यू ग्रो एंड एज यू फाइंड योर पर्पज एंड एज यू फाइंड योर पैशन यू सडनली रियलाइज दैट there is something else that you want to live for which brings me to the concept of fu money yeah um i don't know how to say this in a safe way but i think users will it's f y o u money which means what's the amount of money you need to earn and have with you to walk away from whatever you're doing does it ever i mean 1 crore was at one point in time your fu money is that does that concept even make sense to you anymore yes this is the biggest problem for the first time founder for the first time founder what happens is first time founder is thinking of all these concepts which says that you know what Bill is fu exit, money fu money uh, and the first time founder is also thinking about saying agar itna ban gaya to hum bech denge and all of those concepts come the first time founder when you are finished with that journey you then start to understand saying that hang on there is something completely different now of course it's unfair for me to say it because we had a great exit if there was not a great exit maybe the second time founder i would be have made the same mistake also so please don't get me that i'm i know what i'm talking about all which i'm saying is the second time round all of these concepts just seem almost the real problem why you sold your company so one of the things which has changed if you ask me in india today the first time founders itself who are coming in they are coming in with a completely different mindset and i so appreciate their way of thinking and how they are building their businesses some of these concepts doesn't hit them uh, i can't say the same thing about founders who started off in 12 2012 2013 you've raised a lot of money over the years positrus pay and then subsequently like you said a billion dollars over the last year or so at pine labs what are your biggest learnings from all your unsuccessful attempts at raising money i i think the biggest learning that i've had is you need to understand the stage of your own company and you need to understand the psyche of the investor i'll give you one example there was this large hedge fund kind of a so incidentally if you look at the pine labs cap table i don't have hedge funds on my cap table there was this one hedge fund who actually reason being and i'll explain that okay. reason right so there's a one hedge fund absolutely has a great relationship with me always likes the story has a very deep conversation never invest into pine lab and that person's take on it is he's saying i have a thesis which says that if the company is not growing 100% i will not invest into the company and i'm like dude i can't grow at 100% but if you see him i have an ebitda positive position why wouldn't you want to invest he's saying this is not my thesis so i then realized that how does a angel investor think 
and it's completely different how does a vc think how does a private equity think how does a hedge fund think and then in citrus pay we actually met masoishi son and this is the time when citrus was this tiny fly when if you consider and we had a chance to meet up with masoishi son we met up with nikesh in those days i went and met up with some of the hedge funds which were invested into hdfc bank completely wrong and we still made great presentations to them came back discussing saying oh this was a great meeting no you're never going to get money out of this uh, situation all right if you could go back in time and change one thing about any of your major decisions in your entrepreneurial career what would that be i wouldn't have sold citrus i'm why do you say that so again you know people talk about it well citrus could have been valued this or valued that i wasn't you know i've it has never bothered me on that topic what bothered me till pine labs happened is at the end of the day you need your own horse you need your own carriage and you need to be able to hug it every day and saying this is mine when i sold citrus i lost that and that made me so uncomfortable uh, it's not funny now when i look at what i'm doing with pine labs i really believe i have been able to get that all over again uh, and that's why i'm completely satisfied with where i am but that's one decision in my entrepreneurial career which i will regret forever what is it that you feel you add most value to pine labs as its ceo if it were one thing which you had to abstract it out to i i think as the one thing which i add to the company i feel is this sense of speed and velocity uh i think uh, you know my my job is to drive velocity and speed uh within the company obviously drive a lot more focus but that's an obvious thing but the fact of driving velocity is extremely extremely important especially in an organization which has got multiple businesses 4200 people the sense of urgency and driving velocity is something which i feel is my number one role now very close to that is um you know this whole culture and what you build in the company is important i'll give you one example um when we sold citrus our office boy made 50 lakhs when we sold citrus yesterday i was in the office out here i was working late uh the boy who was uh, giving me chai i i had a 20 minutes conversation with him in terms of how much do you earn where have you come from where do you stay i wish everybody does that with everybody in the company the simple principle is if i am in the position to lead a company anybody who comes in that company has to be happy when they are there or have to have learned something new in that period of time if i can drive that culture in the organization i think i'll be very satisfied with my role what are some of the stock responses people may hear from you if they come to you saying i have this problem can you solve it for me what are you most likely to say i don't come to you to solve for my problem why are you coming to me for me to solve your problem the link to episode 8 with amrish is in the show notes which brings me to amit agarwal the co-founder and ceo of no broker the 9 year old bengaluru headquartered real estate platform that wants to disrupt the very concept of brokerage fees 
Amit speaks about entering management consulting as a young MBA because it paid the most. Starting a business that almost no investor wanted to fund. Convincing notoriously value-minded Indians to pay a subscription fee before finding a rental apartment and running a frugal organization with a cockroach mentality. Let's hear Amit. In fact, coming back to the statement that you made, which we write that we are the world's largest non-brokerage company. So what happened is that when we were raising funds, we used to say that we want to disrupt the brokerage market and we want to make a C2C platform. And the question which was most asked by to us by the investors was that where is this, where is the US equivalent of this or where is the China equivalent of this? And our answer was, we don't know. There is no, there is no other equivalent of us anywhere else in the world. And their question was, if there is no Uber, no Amazon equivalent of this, uh, uh, this anywhere in the world, then how can this be a great idea? Somebody somewhere must have figured out that you can disrupt brokerage. And how is it so that you think you can and everybody else has missed? And our response was that perhaps in other countries, law and order and rules are stricter. You need to give exam to become a real estate broker. You need to have a certification. Here a grocery shop, shop guy also can become a broker part-time. And, uh, uh, and also that in terms of paying income tax and being regulatory bound by what you promise, those things are different in US. So our journey basically started by questioning and as your show basically says first principle. So I think we started with a very, very first principle that why should, why can't people talk to each other directly? And the response of VCs were that, yes, they can. But if they could, why hasn't this been done anywhere before? And second objection was what you basically just said, that since a broker is physically present, they can take the money post the deal is done. What we said is we are not a broker. So we are going to charge a very small amount, one fourth of this. And it's going to be flat fees. So we don't care how expensive the house is. We are going to charge a flat fees. So their question was, this sounds fine, but why will a customer pay in advance when the deal is not done? Because it is not, this is not how real estate happens anywhere in the world. You go to any country, customer never pays in advance for real estate deals. And that also without a promise. So after I'm Ahmedabad, like, like it typically happens that uh, whichever thing is paying most, that becomes the favorite <laughs> profession for most of the MBA grads. So management consulting was considered to be the hot industry and something which is challenging. So I took to management consulting just because of that, not because I knew anything about it. Once I entered management consulting, I realized that it's extremely challenging. And the typically people leave in two to three years because you need to fly Monday morning and the flight for the flight, you need to get up at 3.30 <laughs> because you want to reach at the office by 9.00 in the client location. And when you're coming back, it is always the last flight, which always gets delayed. Last flight of the night always gets delayed. And then you reach very, very, you reach early morning of Saturday. Uh, for some, somehow for me, uh, I love the challenge which comes at the client side. Because typically what the client would say is that, you are going to see my watch and tell me my time, tell me the time, right? That typically is what people think about management consulting. So I love that challenge of basically people doubting whether you are with good intention and then slowly you working hard, really adding value. And then those same people start trusting you 
and when you leave then they are good friends and then you remain in touch with them so i loved management consulting i loved the challenge of it the thrill of it the difficulty of it and the intellectual challenge of it so i'll just give you one additional point of data which will help us together decide the additional point of data is that in these mba colleges you look at what happens after one year more than 50% of people Attrition. change jobs that's right so at and these same companies who are acting so pricey to take only three people from that campus they are going to hire people of much less caliber in hordes outside campus because that's what the need is in on that day in that campus their hr told okay three people so they came up with that artificial less quota but they are large companies and or they are growing companies so if i can go back and if i can go to every campus and tell the kid who is basically worrying about the day zero and slogging in the night and is feeling very nervous and is wearing tie for the first time in those two years i'll tell him don't worry this is not the end of life at that point of time it seems like the end of life if you don't get into day zero you are gone and there is this peer pressure and there is this also sort of shame that you did not get into That's the right. good like one if you haven't gotten placed on day 0 and yeah. day 1 and then every additional day just adds to the pressure correct but uh, the data doesn't agree with it the data says that the same companies hire hire you much more easily later after you have one or two years of experience outside the campus data says that anyway you are going to change the job so if i could go back i will say that focus more practically i am saying focus more on making friendships because these same guys your friends are going to use give your resume as a referral that is much more better roi on your time than worrying about that particular day job what is it that you feel you add most value to no broker as its ceo i think the team is extremely good they are very very driven the only thing which i basically which i think i challenge them is make it larger why can't we make it larger so i think sometimes uh, because of the experience that they have had in past they must have worked in some other company where the mistakes must have been punished so many a times i feel that despite all good intentions they don't take a large bet and i think that's the one thing which i basically encourage them and coax them to take a larger bet even if something goes wrong we'll figure it out i think there are two three principles two principles perhaps one is that we have we have always assumed that if we could make the cl- slate clean how would we start for example there was no concept of a phone relationship manager ever in real estate industry we said hey let's assume that there is no bro- there is n- not a single broker who can take you and put you on the back of his scoot- scooter and show you houses we are starting afresh now how would you connect to people uh and what information that person would need for example our tenant i'm digressing a little bit for example a tenant is often deluded into believing that this property is very hot when it is not right so the broker once he guesses that you are interested in this property often says hey the token is going to you have to give the token by tonight otherwise there are five more people who and second principle is basically look at the inputs first and output later so instead of asking the sales team as to how how much sales has happened look at the inputs more saying that are the owners increased have the owners increased have the interactions increased are you basically seeing any dip in any core input metric 
so then the discussion becomes less about hey you have not done a good job to what has not helped you do a good job so i will tell you that in terms of culture we are a tad different say from other startups and every startup reflects the approach of the founder and all the approaches are good for example many founders love micromanaging and when i meet them they tell me that we love micromanaging because that's how it should be or that's how we like and they are great founders and they have made great companies so that approach also works uh, my approach is to basically delegate fully and trust fully and create more entrepreneurs in in no broker because after a year of starting in no broker i realized earlier i used to think that i am very smart i am from iit i am from iim and this business is basically 2 plus 2 is equal to 4 so i i can figure it out but i think after one year i realized that if you have people who are smarter than you and who are driven and who have been given full accountability then they just become 10 more co-founders and that has been the amazing discovery so i don't think that before i became entrepreneur i ever imagined it so now coming to your question now when i meet people i am trying to so we have a saying always be a owner never a tenant basically means i always have an ownership mentality so what i have realized is that people who people either have that mentality or not and people who have that mentality has a feature in which they try to pursue something in their life without any specific great advantage i will just explain you so what we have discovered is people who like sports have played sports a lot not that because they will become they'll come to indian cricket team but they just love pursuing it people who have pursued music last year everybody was investing everywhere the number of deals were sky high where are those good companies <laughs> this year there are even better companies were surviving in the environment but nobody wants to touch because others are not touching so it is a hard mentality and we went to south korea some unknown investor some single guy in japan hni so for the first 5 years we just survived and then when of course the network effect starts hitting then general atlantic entire global came so my learning from this is that hey you can't fight it you just need to survive so we think that we are like a cockroach company we for the we just want to survive and our while we had 18 crore when we raised uh, whenever uh, me akhil and saurav whenever we used to travel overseas we will always stay in one room except with extra bed in which akhil had to <laughs> sleep and we in our hsr office which we took even in that one or two month of summer which is there we never took ac while we had money because we were so much paranoid that nobody is funding us so what will happen to us and i think that frugal mentality still continues so any problem and the frugal mentality quickly kicks in because yeah so this is amazing question and the way in which we deal with this pure maths so what we basically say is we are seeding these new businesses you are doing packers and movers you are doing furniture rental now we said each of you are entrepreneur we are giving you some seed funding so we are giving you some resources you can hire some people and then we you are we are giving you access to our no broker customers platform one page and then you are on your own you figure it out and once you start giving some traction once you start converting some traction traction then we give you series a funding so then the tech technology team will come 
they will say okay i am going to make a page for you so i'm going to do something so the corporate is like the internal vc and new initiatives are like startups exactly are there startups that you have refused to fund at some point internally saying no. that look your numbers are not great we'll think about it maybe later the way in which we have done is that yes we have said that okay we will not fund you but always it has happened is that because when we started that startup we knew that the pain point is there it belongs to one of those marketplaces where the customer npc is wrong and hence what we have said in 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 our investor entrepreneur ways that this startup is not bad this entrepreneur is not good so what we do is we we have in our we i see this exact same thing which you just mentioned i say i am an investor so when suppose a guy comes to me with a problem i say hey you are the entrepreneur you need to figure it out you tell me the answer how it can be done and if he's not able to do it then we are convinced that the market is big the startup potential is big the guy is not right so then we bring a new guy and we say okay you you give it a try which are the kind of people who typically don't <laughs> fit into no broker so there are two type of people one is people who come for good salary for startup glamour but they want a lot of directions so they have come here saying that hey yes i am the owner they have been able to are these middle management senior management so both junior at at i am talking about senior management only that at senior level people many times people come and they, this is the last 3 4 5 years when there was this wave of um senior talent that came into indian well funded startups because a their stock salaries etc which yeah. a lot of which is reversing right <laughs> exactly so these people come they enjoy the initial uh, uh, aha moment and then they realize that they need direction they can't think or they don't enjoy the process of thinking and experimenting and so on which which we figure out within few months and then we part ways second is a very unique set of people which i never imagined before would come i would put them in as extremely intelligent people <laughs> who are so intelligent that when you interview them or when you talk to them they can come up with very articulate 10 reasons why this will not work <laughs> i get it it's at the intersection of intellectual and cynical yes so you are absolutely right most of these people are extremely cynical and skeptical and so i remember interviewing a guy and he told me in extreme detail why the business for which i am hiring him will not work and i looked at him it and said it makes no that... sense because <laughs> you got to believe i mean the job of an entrepreneur or even a leader in a startup is to believe against all odds so i told him in the interview that you are absolutely right <laughs> if you think it cannot work it cannot work under you what are some of the stock responses people may hear from you if they come to you with a problem that actually they should be solving but they've come to you i mean like what might you say commonly my most common response is you are the entrepreneur you tell me what needs to be done so i think the two three failures is one i would say experimentation which got which failed was that we tried with a co living experiment and we basically took the houses and we which a shared accommodation of bachelors and then we discovered that it is extremely it's a hospitality business because the bachelor keep on leaving the houses so their attrition is extremely high and unless you have a minimum set of bachelors living in a house the owner doesn't make money and then you need to buy the furniture so it is extremely logistics driven so when we did the calculation later we figured out there is no way you can ever make money so it is not about one year or five year you can never be profitable that's what we figured we we felt 
So we basically close that. What phrases are you known for inside the organization? So two, three phases. One is always be a owner, which basically means always have an entrepreneurial attitude. Second is honesty first, nicety later. Because I have seen many people being nice in cross-functional meetings and not speaking their mind out of respect. And third is that when you are a leader, you are like that glittering goldfish in an aquarium, which everybody is looking at. You are not looking at everybody, but everybody is looking at you. So as a leader, be extremely cautious with what signal you send, what you say through your body language. Never be flippant. If you want to give a message, give a message, but never underestimate the fact that 30 people are looking at you and their observation power is much, much more than your observation power. Do you find it easy to change your mind about beliefs, strong beliefs that you hold? And if so, how? So, in fact, I think that uh, I do it now so often that I need to course correct. Uh, so, I'm always on the lookout of new piece of information and data so that I always keep my mind fluid about what the decision is because in this business and like every other business customers change their priorities change and you need to be extremely nimble competition is tough across the categories that we do they are amazing entrepreneurs anyway and we have seen that the reason why we are thriving is exactly because our predecessors felt that non-brokerage would not work so while we started, while we got funding, while we created an office, while we were getting customers, every month, every year, they could see that data. But still, they decided in their mind that no, non-brokerage is not a thing to go. Similarly, I am paranoid that if, have I decided something which is too strong? So hence, if the same thing would happen with us if we are too inflexible. If you want to listen to all of Amit's insights, head over to episode 9 also linked in the show notes. And finally, we have Tarun Mehta, the co-founder and CEO of Aether Energy, easily India's best-known electric scooter maker. Tarun speaks about his journey to convince investors of his vision, doing hard things that defied common sense, building an organization over decades, and why it takes at least three years to make a true impact at work. Let's listen to Tarun. When we began... We ultimately wanted to build an energy company. We still do. We still hope in the next 30, 40 years that we build this, hopefully we build this, we are able to shape this more towards an energy company. The mission of the company that we had written for ourselves was dropping the cost of energy. We had an idea of battery packs. So we figured building battery packs, enabling electric vehicles sort of fits in with the idea of an energy company. And actually the first product that had I had proposed uh, had three buzzwords simple safe sasta right it was not the 450 that you know today it was supposed to be 25 kilometer per hour scooter uh, that'll ride very slowly will only carry one person on it um, because I figured that might give us a good shot at building large number of electric vehicles as you kept diving in more and more and, and that's my rationalization also right eventually you also have to find a way to crack into the market if you're going to be going up against the likes of a Bajaj TVS hero, building that product was not going to be good enough. We wouldn't have been able to convince enough people to buy this. We wouldn't have been able to convince enough people that we are a legitimate brand. We wouldn't have been able to convince, we, don't, we wouldn't have driven enough passion or excitement for what we're doing. 
we kind of realized, listen, the, the right way to crack into this market would be to cause a lot of desire. People have to fall in love with what we're building. If you don't do that, people are not out there to try and buy, try and save the environment. Nobody cares about carbon emissions, truly. It's all a post-purchase rationalization. How do I convince people that buying electric oh, would be good? Yeah, we're increasingly moving towards that. We've experimented with it, by the way. It's not like we've, it's, we have didn't think of it. What we realize is that if you build if you build a very powerful brand, you're better off making all your money upfront with the customer, right? Because that's where they're willing to pay you all that you ask them to. Don't try to cut corners there. Don't try to push monetization later. Uh, we increasingly become confident that, you know what, maybe even something like charging, like access to public chargers, don't ask them Don't ask them to pay you on a per charge basis. It's peanuts, it's distraction. It's just a pointless effort and friction for everybody. Give Instead? them lifetime free access to charging. Just charge them one-time package for it. Turns out, that's the best way to make money. It's the lowest amount of uh, commerce, least friction commerce. You, you just collect everything up front. And if you have the right product, you can solve the financing. Yeah, sure, you can do those layering, right? But I'm becoming less and less of a fan of complex monetization exercises. You do imagine reading a lot of McKinsey articles that uh, the monetization model is changing until you actually start selling stuff. Um, what happened for us is uh, when we began in 2018, when we began sales, we had a model at 1.25 lakhs. And uh, we had announced then that uh, we'll have a monthly subscription for a whole bunch of stuff. Um, but what we realized is most people signed up for those subscriptions at the point of sale of the vehicle itself. And increasingly we saw them sort of say, can I sign up for like a three-year subscription here, five-year subscription here? I, you would have imagined the other way around, right? Like, uh, it's okay, just sign me up for like a 30-day pack. I'll see. I'll experiment more. Um, uh, by the way, there are two parts. This is a part one. So what I realized is if people trust the brand enough, they just don't want to get distracted by again and again getting called up, again and again making that decision. Um, they would just want to sign up for that for a long time. They just want to trust and, and go for a long time. Um, you're buying a 1.5 lakh rupee product. Do you really want to decide every month whether you want to spend another 300 rupees on it? You would rather just say, you know what? Charge me 1.53 lakhs. Take the next one year. Heck, charge me 1.6 lakhs. Take the next three years, right? I'm signing up for the entire experience here. Don't cut too many of those experiences out and make it very complex for me. It's not 100% true, but it's more true than not. That's what we realized. The second factor, however, and that was our own conscious call. We realized there are a lot of things that we want to offer people but they don't know that they need them today, okay? And the more I make it an optional thing for them, like, hey, pay for it as you go, unlock the value of it as you go, they will actually not unlock it. Uh, let me give an example. Um, it, it's, a, it's, it's a slightly related example. A lot of customers keep asking us, we, ha we were the first ones to introduce 3G SIM card on a, on a scooter, um, though it's 4G. So back then it was, I think, 2G, whatever. I'm a Marwadi from Jodhpur, uh, but born and brought up in Ahmedabad. Uh, went to school there. Uh, joined IIT Madras in Chennai. Uh, did a five-year undergrad there. Um, my dad runs a small business, but that's like one-person business. So it's not exactly like a big business. Uh, family's fairly split. Some folks are in businesses. Lots of them are in services. So there was no natural, despite being a Marwadi born in Gujarat, no natural reason to sort of go for a business. I am very clear. I went to IIT because 
I was hoping they'll give me a six lakh rupee job back then. Uh, I just wanted a good job, right? I tried ultra hard to become a consultant. I ensured that my resume was really well dressed up to get Which into McKinsey. Which year did you pass out? Twenty twelve. All right. I tried ultra hard to become a consultant. Uh, really Why? tried hard because that'll just pay me more dollars. Like good good money is made by consultants or bankers, and I didn't think I would enjoy a bank. Consulting seemed sexy enough. Um, but I couldn't clear a single consulting interview. Tried really hard to get into Harvard, uh, uh, Harvard HBS two plus two program, but failed that. So was basically down to other options. Um, got into Ashok Leyland, uh, which just gave me a lot of free time. Uh, left Ashok Leyland six months later and started this up. The more customers we spoke to, the more we realized that listen, nobody will pay us a single rupee for this battery pack, because what we are trying to do is. People have bought electric scooters. We'll go to them and we'll tell them your battery is stuck. We'll give you instead of a lead acid battery, we'll give you a brand new lithium ion battery that last you better. Yeah, wo balandikra. And realize, listen, they hate their scooters. They're not going to spend a single dime more on fixing them. It's a terrible business model. If you want to build this, if you love our batteries and our battery management systems, the only way forward is to actually build the entire vehicle and sell them the vehicle. So we built a few scooters and we rank enough for Kool Aid to think that if you could build an ugly ass prototype in a college, we could totally build a production scooter out there with funding. So we said, yeah, I will start a company, and uh, everybody encouraged us, uh, which was a bad idea because it it was a our predictions were terribly off. It goes back to the start why we why you ended up starting Ether. Um, we wanted to build an energy company. Um, if we just landed up on batteries, and that took us to vehicles. Now, what we wanted to do was just build a lot of electric vehicles because that has a meaningful impact in the energy space. Um, so. But how do you build a lot of oil? How do you build a lot of EVs? How do you sell a lot of EVs? And as we went through our options, we kind of realized that, yeah, you could do like an ultra cheap vehicle and try and sell it, but you will just end up commoditizing your sales, not create enough value, not create enough trust, and in the process possibly cause a lot of mess. And that's what kind of happened in China. Uh, you could take an approach of uh, go ultra heavy on marketing, right, of a fairly mediocre product. Um, but then you're just going to run into essentially a marketing battle with companies that are way better than you on this, right? Like a Bajaj will beat you left, right, and center if you try to do that. You could try and just discount again an average product and sell that, but then you're on a discounting war with larger funded startups, and they will always be better funded startup than you. And that's a terrible thing. Like if I want to put, I want to do this for the next thirty, forty years. I don't want to put the fate of this entire thing down to who fundraises better. That's a terrible, terrible. Uh, uh, I, I don't like the control that it gives me. So, what's the best strategy to control uh, and actually put out a lot of vehicles? We realize that you know what turns out in the scooter space, not a lot of people are trying to build a good product. With the exception of the original Honda Activa, I have very little respect for great products. There have just not been enough great products in this space. Activa is the last great That's product. The- So we figured that listen, of all the options that we could start a company as, if we take a stab at recreating and and building an amazing successful product, will 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 win on a few uh will on will win on parameters that others are not competing on. I don't want to compete on stuff that others are already good at. It's a losing battle. I don't want to win a manufacturing battle with a hero. I don't want to win a marketing battle with a Bajaj. I don't want to build, win the trust battle today with a Honda or a TVS. These are super hard fight. I don't want to win a funding battle with an Ola Electric. 
I think these are fundamentally lost causes. You'll feel you're fighting a good fight until you just lose last. Would you invest if you went to raise money from yourself with the pitch that you had? Actually, I would definitely say this guy sounds fraud because my numbers kept changing. Okay, and that's why I'm saying like this. Had a, this should really have gotten shot down properly because I used to tell people that listen, ten crores, twenty five people will move a vehicle to production, right? And I legit believed in it until I was disproved. And I raised eighty crores, and I still couldn't figure out how to move this to production. We're now with hundred people, and I figured, okay, this is this is it. With hundred crores and eighty people, with hundred people, we'll move this to production. Famous last words. And then we raised two hundred crores, and we're still struggling. To, it ended up costing us four hundred or five hundred crores to finally move this to production with a team of three hundred, four hundred people. I was terribly wrong on my estimates. So investors were all right when they told me that your estimates are wrong. This will take much longer than your. thinking much more people than you're thinking much more money than you're thinking what all of us were wrong however was on the opportunity we all thought this is itna opportunity we all now think this is a much larger opportunity but they were right in saying that yeah my estimates are wrong my numbers are wrong no so we learned a lot of painful lessons in um in in drinking our own kool-aid and going down a very long path sometimes the company almost died uh five times five times in ethers life we have legit run out of money uh the run of money i mean not like wow short runway i mean as of this day we have no money in the bank we can't make our dues tomorrow um it's happened so many times that uh, we've learned some lessons out of them um we we still believe that you got to make long term deep bets but we become very respectful of the fact that you got to make very few bets you cannot do everything and the way we now sort of institutionalize that is by insisting on a very 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 sharp product portfolio people keep asking us when will you guys build a bike when will you guys build more scooters when will you guys possibly build a car i used to say yeah maybe in a few years now i say no will not we're not building a car we're not even going to touch a bike for another two maybe three years we may touch another scooter next year and this is after the fact that ether runs the largest r&d in india today uh the entire is just focus on one thing because i know that everything that we do we we often end up doing so deep i can't have the system sort of getting confused it's unfortunate but it's a function of how our economy evolved um building requires a higher risk taking uh and and just higher you you you've got to have some room for failure but given how poor we were as a country for such a long time now um buildings building was not really an option what the only way people could earn was by trading something that works and trading margins hence became the only way to sort of make money um even if you look at most auto companies or most companies in india almost all of them will eventually trace their origins back to some trading oh we were importers of this we were importers of that even auto companies hey listen we had a joint venture with this european company this japanese company they bought the tech they bought the product Obviously, everybody wants to buy the product, so we gave them land and uh, we started running operations for them. Uh, as scale grew, we had to set up multiple plants, so they taught us how to build plants. So the next plant we built. As scale grew, we said, "Listen, we will just start running the plant ourselves. You don't need to run the plant." As scale grew, at some point we kicked them out, and we said, "You know what? Now we are the brand, and we don't need you because technology is anyway stable." But the fundamental DNA that listen, like unlike let's say General Motors or a uh, Chrysler or a uh, Mercedes Benz, which can legit claim like we invented the internal combustion engine, there is still a DNA somewhere in their organization that yeah we can build from scratch. Uh, we may have the wrong culture, but the building culture is not completely disappeared. I think a lot of companies in India don't have that culture, um, and I think it's a shame. 
um and it's by the way it's not just engineering building i think just legit uh 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 the fear of building anything new is just very large in indian companies i write that in that blog at some point that notice how many companies actually tried building a brand in india and how many companies try to build a brand in us and i think it's a very good parameter check how many companies are willing to build because if you're not willing to build a brand you know you're a trading company your brand has no value you're a trading company you will import something you will export something and you're done you you'll sort of quickly make a 10% cut and you're out tomorrow it's when you decide to build a brand that you're thinking long term and i think that's where the entire builder mindset starts i'm thinking long term i'm putting a promise out what i'm saying has to mean something you could still be a build you could still be a trading company of sorts but i think most builder companies have to start by thinking of building a brand and very few companies in india attempt to build a brand historically we had the more classical functional org structure until um, until we hit this magical number of 300 i was advised once upon time that good organizations also break around the 300 mark for some reason which it which happened to ether and everything sort of started falling apart uh, same time we concluded that we are doing too many things we were running out of money and everybody sort of saying the same thing wow this is not the ether of old uh, so on forth and we kept digging in and we kept trying to fix this we kept trying to fix this uh, ultimately we realized that one big problem is um people can't context switch enough if people managers have to switch across five different products and by the way charging is different product vehicle is different product a connectivity is different product if the same sourcing guy has to understand the context of every single product that you're building every single component that you're building is this too much context switching happening for that person every day and everything is centrally going through him so we iterated enough and we finally got here but uh, it's still wip we've been building this this structure since 20 early 2020 So we launched our first product here in Bangalore, right? Um, and uh, all the early adopters were product managers at tech companies, right? Or, or, or that profile. And you think that that's what your market is? Uh, actually, for us, it was a happy surprise and uh, allowed us to change strategy for the better. But originally, looking at our audience, especially because our first store was here in Indranagar, you're gonna think that wow, this is your typical buyer, right? somebody with a lot of spare cash and just wants to have the latest in technology and we started calling this in our profiles that it's a tech early adopter that we are selling to um so there was a feedback loop the people you saw and the people yes. you sold to yes. ended up becoming your target audience yes. as well more yes. and more and and you sort of feel that oh we should probably solve their problems of you know even more cutting edge stuff that's probably meaningless and pointless but seems cool uh at least there was this debate internally until until we uh, got to chennai and i think more importantly until we opened up a second outlet in bangalore in jp nagar jp nagar is not where all the techies are necessarily coming from and jp nagar certainly started attracting a very different audience family buyers from jp nagar and jayanagar proper families coming in and all of them making a very hardcore decision listen i'm going to be riding this scooter every day does this work for me or not it did work for them which lucked out we lucked out but it suddenly changed our Our, our our understanding of who the customer is, and the earlier after crowd sort of disappeared after a while, very quickly actually after the first maybe five thousand units. Um, so we started thinking differently about product marketing. We started thinking differently about what we are really selling here. Uh, Bangalore does have a way of sort of otherwise changing, keep, keeping you in a little bit of a bubble. A lot of people start up because they want to be entrepreneurs. They want to be I don't know free. They want to make a lot of wealth. apart from my base cash requirements that was never the real requirement we we were never driven by wow we uh 
we want to be free because we don't think starting up is becoming free we it was not about i want to own so much percentage you get massively diluted as an entrepreneur in india um so very frankly if if what happened is at some point we could have done this in another company uh but we could have done this what we wanted to do it wouldn't have mattered whether it's our company or not frankly so much um and we started from there we didn't find a place where we could be housed so we decided to start up uh we realized that it wouldn't make sense to get acquired after a while so we said holy shit you know screw it we'll just build our own manufacturing our own supply chain we'll just do it ourselves we'll not just do design and uh, so now we're here but to date i we are we're still not driven because uh, see okay we're interested in building an organization because we think that's the only way we can ensure what we have started sort of continues not because we want to run this for 40 years necessarily i'm hoping i get to do this for 30 40 years more okay you said you've had five near death experiences correct so my question normally is what are the top 3 failures that you've had but like let's let's go with still that like if you were to look back at ether huh. and you were to look at like you know things that you did either missteps or missed opportunities are there anything that you count as failures um contrary to what what i told you the start we were not very focused especially in 2019 and that's why we learned uh, we were very defocused we were trying to build a scooter a bike this and that and everything and this just spread the organization too thin too early without having first productionized and and profitably sold this thing uh and that came very close to killing the company uh and that just started a bunch of sequence of events it took us 2 years and several near death experiences to sort of get out of that crap that we walked in in 2019 a downward spiral from there yeah down or was uh, it like you know what were the successes because you came to a near death experience hmm. because you spread yourself too thin correct what's more interesting you're saying that that wasn't the end of it it took you 2 years to kind of recover fully from it what happened what was that see because by that point you can't just sort of jump out of that trajectory so fast uh the challenge is you've already walked in a place where listen this product by the time we realized like let's towards the end of 2019 we realized that wow we can't do this we have to focus we have to and, and we cut out every single thing in the company except the scooter every other thing became like just dropped off the priority priority list like priority 0 uh this was the only number one priority but this is a negative gross margin product like it is a minus 200% negative gross margin i can't fix it tomorrow right and if i can't fix it tomorrow and we have no money that means i can't sell anything tomorrow so until this unit economics is fixed we can't sell anything so now you're stuck in that place and you're going to be in that place for a solid year before you really fix this unit economics and then you will have to face the reality that you've not industrialized this product really well so you've got to focus a lot more on supply chain but to get suppliers interest you need to be able to tell them that i will produce a lot of this tomorrow which you can't say until that year is done So you've got to go through that really painful year, fix the unit economics, then go with an honest face to suppliers, tell them, now I will buy not 200 but 500 units a month, and I'm projecting I'll get to 1,000 in the next three months, right? Trust me, they will not trust you. So you have to live through that painful quarter, demonstrate before they start listening to you. So this entire phase took a solid two years, and the end result of these two years was that towards the end of 2021, we finally signed the first outside term sheet from a financial investor. since december 2016 right uh 
So you couldn't like just sort of snap out of it very quickly. I changed my mind a lot on short-term things. Uh, I changed my mind very rarely on long-term things. And that's something we also expect generally at Ether. Uh, have extremely high conviction on long-term bets because you can't go wrong there. You, because we have long-term bets, you also double down so massively on. Like there will be a 300-member team working on it. So you can't get the long-term bet really wrong, really have high conviction on it. Short term, be super flexy about. You know, we, we think this spec was a good idea. You know what? No, competitions launch. We learned uh, that's a terrible idea. We can still switch out of it. So short term, super flexible. Long term, very rarely. To listen to the full conversation with Tarun, head over to episode 10 in the show notes. And that was all for this special episode. A big thanks to my colleague Rajiv CN, a resident sound engineer, for helping put together this special episode across over eight hours of conversations. I hope I managed to interest you in at least a few of these incredible conversations, if not all of them. And I hope to see you with a brand new episode next fortnight. Thank you for listening.